0: Hi everyone, I'm Pamilia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Rovik Jeremiah Robert, who is the founder of The Hidden Good, which is a community engagement agency for social impact. He also hosts the SG Explained podcast alongside his co-host Elliot Tan, where they explore institutions, histories, events and phenomena in Singapore. In the following conversation, we chat about the overarching mission that drives the work that Robic does, and also why going beyond the standard Chinese-Malay-Indian Others framework is so important to the growth of Singaporean food culture. So you know, I've been spending the past few days listening to the podcast episodes that you've been on, on other podcasts, and I think it's really inspiring how you have so much energy to do so many different things. Mm-hmm. But I think something that you said really intrigued me. So you said something about how you don't see a dichotomy between the work that you do, uh, which is with EDB, and all these side projects that you currently do as well. So what is this big overarching mission that you're striving towards?
1: Yeah, I, I I think that's been a question I've gotten many times, mostly because people are very surprised by how much time I seem to have. Uh, but I, I think it started off when I was much younger and I was trying to think about what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and as I talked to more people and I realized that each person has you know, their own struggles, their own views of the world, I was actually very energized by that sense of diversity. Right? There are so many people out there who have... Their own backgrounds their own perspectives and their own kind of goals and ambitions and i was very drawn to that mission to bring people together to unite people uh and to give especially people who may not have an advantage you know starting out that opportunity to to get on a level playing field and to fight for their causes right um so i see myself basically in two main roles, uh which is something i i put on my linkedin and stuff like that. It's, uh being an advocate and a social innovator, right? So an advocate meaning being able to create platforms for other people to, to have a voice, uh, not necessarily having to speak for them, but you know, really just trying to create the grounds for them to to champion whatever they want to champion for. Uh, and then social innovator in the sense of trying to find ways to to address social issues through new ways, whether it's through social enterprises, uh, through tech for good, uh, or even through Uh, podcasting, right, which is just content creation and storytelling. So that's been my unifying uh, mission and and kind of goals. The way I do it uh, doesn't really matter to me, uh, whether it's getting a day job, which pays the bills, I think that's definitely part of the calculus. Uh, But also, you know, trying to be involved in different communities and platforms. And I think one thing I've learned, not just for myself, but for anyone is that actually when you're mission driven, when you know why you're doing what you're doing, energy just comes. Like you you will feel tired and scarce maybe once in a while and you'll always find ways to energize yourself. But uh, it's like an endless supply for some reason and you can just tap onto it.
0: Oh, I really love that. Like I can feel your sense of passion for what you're doing. And I think it really energizes people when they hear about such stories. Because I feel that a lot of Singaporeans, we just, you know, go to our day jobs not really knowing why we do certain things. So I, I think that's really great. Um, So you talked about giving minorities a platform to have their voices heard. So when it comes to food and food culture, do you feel that minorities have their voices heard? Do you feel that there is enough representation?
1: I think in Singapore, it's a very interesting dynamic, right? Because it's minority representation to the extent that the structure allows for it. Uh, So, you know, you have some level of celebration of Malay cuisine, of Indian cuisine. And I do think that they give... Uh, a pretty decent representation. I think any uh, Singaporean across races will always appreciate your Prata-Briyanis or even your Misiam-Migurins and, and stuff like that. And even those have, have had their fusion journeys. Uh, I think what's interesting is that there the term minority has traditionally only been used for uh, maybe the Malay and Indian populations and to an extent uh, Eurasian populations and stuff like that. But there's a growing uh, heterogeneity of, of minorities out there, right? Uh, both because of our cosmopolitan status, where you have people coming from, uh, you know, Indonesia, Philippines in the region, and then even from uh, countries around the world. You have South American influences. We just did a recording with a person from the Sea community about Sea culture, and we were trying to learn about not just the religious practices but also the cultural practices. And it was interesting because he said that while the sikh community was here very early on in singapore's history uh, it is now actually outsized by the japanese population and mm. not just in terms of uh, pure numbers but also in terms of influence of food in terms of influence and culture and so there's this very dynamic state that's happening in singapore and i think we just sometimes we don't appreciate actually how much that has an influence on on what we see as majority minority here right and and stuff like mm. that. so so i i, I like Instead of looking at it from that dynamic of majority minority, actually, I like to see it as just an overall diversity. And who who needs to have a platform for for you know better profiling or just to be able to to be a part of the conversation? Uh, they can do so in whatever way they want. Whether they want to enter as a minority or they want to enter as you know, here's just a point of view, and you know you can take it as adding to the collection or not. Right? So so that that's been some of the approaches I've taken with regards to that.
0: Yeah. Mm. And through the podcast that you and Elliot do, how do you serve as a platform for these voices?
1: So Elliot and I have a very interesting history. We go back like eight years. Actually, I found an old Facebook picture of us where we were much uh, more slim and, and, and fit as young guys. <laughs> uh, but we've definitely had each act on us. Uh, we go back a long time and I think we've thankfully, because of our exposure to... Uh, the media space we've been exposed to to different influences right whether it's some of the, the government platforms where we started to get some exposure to, to bigger topics or even uh, the, the media space which actually is quite interesting the media space has a lot of very interesting personalities who all uh, come from different backgrounds and within that space you have people who are who some of them are minorities right and some of them are actually in the content space because they want to champion. own identities. And so I think that was the roots of of a lot of this, where Elliot and I started getting exposed to different types of content creators and different types of storytelling approaches. And so when we thought about doing this podcast, uh, I think one of the things that we wanted to do was to really explore that diversity. Um, I think the media space tends to have this dynamic where you'll ultimately gravitate towards what is most popular and most, you know, quote unquote, liked by people. Uh, And that may not always embrace diversity. And so we wanted to take a very intentional and active effort to maintain the space for diversity. And so that meant sometimes challenging ourselves and like, okay, actually, you know, uh, what are, if we look at our content content calendar, how much are we creating space for topics that maybe either of us don't know anything about, right? Mm. And that's where we actually enjoy bringing on guests for our show. So uh, Pam, we've invited you as a guest for one of our future episodes, (laughs) very much in that uh, degree, right? Because we, we know next to nothing about Heritage food beyond like some of the conversations we have with guests or the research we've done, uh, mm. and so we try to plug our our knowledge gaps or even our awareness gaps by bringing on guests to to talk to us, and then it's that just natural curiosity that drives a lot of it. Mm,
0: that's yeah. fantastic. So, how do you really decide on what to feature? I mean, what topics to feature on your podcast?
1: Uh, the the honest answer is whatever comes to mind. <laughs> uh, we we do we so we do have. Every season, we take a, a break after the, the end of each season. and We normally have uh, a catch up in between uh, and we'll plan out some of the episodes that we do think will take sort of some effort to plan around. So, for example, uh, we did an episode recently with the Financial Coconut and this was about Singapore as a financial hub. And so that re- it was very research heavy. And so we, we knew we needed to take some time for that. But mm-hmm. then there are others that are a bit more spontaneous. Uh, so, for example, we did one on the Malayan recently, and that was because I think I just had a question of like, actually, you know, what's the story of the Malayan? How many Malayans mm-hmm. are out there? And that just sprouted the episode. So, I, I, I mean, we like that uh, dynamism in a lot of ways because it keeps it exciting for us as content creators. We're not getting paid uh, for doing this. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it just, again, the driver is our curiosity. Uh, and again, our goal to embrace some level of diversity in, in the Singaporean yeah. identity. Yeah.
0: So what what really got you so interested in Singaporean identity and culture? Was it your time abroad when you were studying?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I was listening to a lot of podcasts in the US, uh, especially stuff like Stuff You Should Know, which is an explainer mm-hmm. podcast. And I, as I was listening to that, I really appreciated how Uh, stuff like Stuff You Should Know or even box Explained, they took the effort to unpack a lot of what we've taken as a given in terms of our identity or culture, again, more from a global or even US-centric context. And so I started asking myself, actually, you know, how would some of these things apply to Singapore? And I think the other big push was because I came back from being overseas for four years, I was forced to reaffirm and reestablish my singaporean identity right my singaporean identity overseas was very much uh in in contrast to an overall u.s identity or a london identity Uh, and so i only just needed to know enough about my identity to participate in society but i didn't need to fully embrace it right Um, or, or rather the way i embraced it was slightly different but over here um in some ways i had to ask myself how much of the overall culture is actually uh, something I have to to accept and adapt to, and how much of it is something that maybe I can influence or or, or be a part of the change around, right? And so, in order to have those questions, you need a fundamental understanding of what makes up Singapore. And so, I realized like that was a big question for me: like, what is CPF? What is uh, the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act? What is uh, you know uh, our water crisis and all this kind of stuff? And You know, you hear all the stuff in the news and it tends to occupy a lot of people's uh, energies and and attention. But when you unpack it, you realize there's actually a lot under it. A lot of it is rhetoric. A lot of it is, you know, positioning. A lot of it is someone somewhere saying something. But when you unpack it, you realize, oh, actually, there's an opportunity for us to ask a question here around, well, how relevant does this happen to be? Actually, which group of people were involved in this conversation and which group of people were excluded? from this conversation, right? And you get to see that in a lot of our episodes, even our more uh, quote-unquote innocent episodes, like the food episodes, right? When we did the episode on Prata or even on uh, chicken rice, you get to see actually who's been telling the stories and, and how does that affect how we have a connection to some of these uh, dishes or, or phenomena as well.
0: Yeah. yeah, I guess for a lot of topics um, like CPF, I think people would only want to know about it if, it directly affects them, you know, Mm -hmm. and their well-being. But for things that are a little bit more intangible in terms of value, like what is the story of the Malayan or like what is the history of our dishes in Singapore? uh, Why do you think it's so important for Singaporeans to really have an understanding of these things?
1: I would say it's because our identity is made up of more than just, you know, our heart systems, right? It's our sense of connection to the intangible. It's our sense of community it's our sense of uh, shared symbols, spaces, uh, language. I, I think a lot of what people connect with these days. There's a tension between what is visible and what is manufactured, and then on the other hand, what is actually um, passed on, more traditional, more more um, unspoken, and, and and just understood, right? And we're starting to see people want the latter more than the former. Uh, you know the. The Malayan, for example, was a great example of this, where uh, poets in Singapore have always had this uh, rite of passage to write a poem or, around the Malayan. And you'll have two camps, one who says, yes, this is an important symbol or you know whether or not we like it, it is a symbol of Singapore. And then on the other hand, poets are basically outrightly rejected because they see it as a complete uh, manufactured product. Right. Uh, and that, that goes with even stuff like hawker culture. I think when you had the UNESCO, uh, you know, the whole bit to have it UNESCO recognized. Right. People were saying uh, on one hand, yes, hawker culture is important to identity. We want it. And on the other hand, they were like, how much of this is just a show? And just for show, because how much are you actually going into supporting um, mm. you know, the heritage around it? How much are you actually enabling the hawkers themselves? Uh, and, and what exactly are we supporting here, right? And I think that tension between symbols and, and and culture is is a very important one, especially for Singapore, because we're very young. And so asking ourselves these questions is important because that's it also shows us where our values are. It also shows us where we want to put our energies. You have, you know, one camp led by KFC2 who's like championing right uh, the protection of hawkers. Even recently with the whole like delivery uh, platform issues, Mm. he he was just saying, like, you can't look at this from a purely economic model, right? If you look at it from an economic model, then all of this is just for show, right? Mm. Um, and, and, and I think those are the conversations that we want to really tap into that we don't think are being explored as, as deeply as we'd like to. yeah.
0: Mm. And so how do you think we can push more Singaporeans to really think deeply about such issues and to almost act in an altruistic manner, you know, voting with your dollar almost with hawker food?
1: I think a lot of it is unpacking existing uh, mental models and, and just structures that we have in our brain. right? So that's what SGXPINK tries to do, that, that unpacking work. Uh, and actually, once you do the unpacking work, my, my interest is actually not in influencing. My, my interest is not to tell people you should go and, and uh, support Hawkers because of, you know, a social imperative. Of course, Elliot and I have personal views, which we will share, but not in an intention to say like you have to do this, but more just to, to of course, just build some connection with our audience. Uh, but when you unpack structure and you unpack mental models, then you give people the foundation to then ask themselves, actually, what is my value, right? Like, what do I care about? Uh, and when you go from a values-based perspective, I think, actually I have a trust, I have have a lot of trust in Singaporeans that they actually do care about hawkers, they do care about community, do care about family, they do care about heritage, and you let those things drive decisions again, um, I I do think people will will choose to to protect the hawkers, or they'll choose to protect heritage, cuisine, uh, or create more intangible cultural um, values, right, Or, or or artifacts, I but I think the issue has always been in the unpacking. We are we're fed a lot of narratives from from very established sources. We're fed a lot of narratives from people in power, and every time you try to challenge those narratives, people try to reestablish them. Right? They'll say there's a reason why these narratives exist. Whether it's some level of social security, some level of pragmatism, uh, but I think our operating environment is very different. We have a bit more of an affluent society. We have uh, more exposure to to new ideas from the world, um, and we have, uh, I think, with technology, the barriers to a lot of stuff have been lowered, right? And so, actually, the operating paradigm is very different from fifty years ago. So, how can we still hold to a lot of the the principles that we think need to apply? Yeah. So, th- I think that that was really what uh, I saw as the as the intervention needed to get people to be more altruistic and to, to act upon their values.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing one poll from the woke Man. I'm not sure if you know about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically yeah. they did a, a poll on their Instagram where they asked people, you know, how many of you agree that we should pay hawkers more? And everyone voted for yes, you know, we do care. But the next question came where, where it was, um, how many of you would pay $8 for a nasi parang meal? And very few actually said yes. So I think there there is a bit of um, a, a culture shift or a mindset shift that needs to happen. What do you think?
1: So I think it's imagination actually, uh, and I think with with questions like that, I actually don't like questions like that because they operate it's very from,
0: reductionistic.
1: Yeah, that's a big piece of it. But I also think it it assumes that the decision is made in the mind, right? But actually, mm-hmm. a decision is very much contextualized to the environment. It's contextualized to, um, you know, what whether you're hungry, right? If you're hungry, you're going to pay $8 for nasi padang, whether you like it or not, right? Whether the food looks good, whether there's a quality of ingredients and stuff like that. And so, uh, so yeah, to your point, it's, it is think but I think it also removes a lot of the context in which we make some of these decisions. And actually, here's a fun fact. I realize for most of the nasi padang dishes I've ordered, especially if you order a rendang uh, meat, with yeah. it, you'll you'll end up paying $7 to $8 anyway, and okay. I'm very happy with it, right? So, so actually... The, the thing is, uh, if you go to a lot of the newfangled hawker centers, those that are trying to embrace, you know, youth, uh, like the young hawkers, right, who are trying to bring in all your fusion techniques, mm. those dishes end up being minimum $7 anyway. And most people don't have an issue paying it because they see it as, I'm paying for for innovation, I'm paying for, for something new, and ultimately it's good food. I think mm. the issue comes when they say, would you pay for the same plate of out that you used to pay $3 for, uh, now would you pay $8 for it? And the question I would, I think is fair is, well, what is the $5 difference, right? Is it just purely um, just cost inflation, or is there actual yeah. value add done? And if, let's say, the hawker uses a nicer plate or maybe uh, you know has better customer service, I think most people would be willing to pay it. And actually, I think the key thing is they should just do it anyway, right? They should go ahead and charge $8. And if people go to the $3 hawker because it can give the same value for cheaper, then that's just economics. But if everyone raises their prices to $8 because they all provide better customer service, people are just going to live with it. And yeah. I think that's what happened in the rest of the world. Like Australia didn't suddenly become like a $20 for a breakfast kind of place, right? There was yeah. a lot of, of people who put on market pressure and, and that's what happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you think young Singaporeans are looking for? I mean, is it innovation or, you know, I think for a lot of people uh, from the older generation, for them, the number one criteria would be taste. But do you think for young Singaporeans it's different? Do you think it's all about the gram, about how the way things look?
1: Okay, so actually you brought up a very good point when you when you actually segmented young Singaporeans, right? Because before I go into that, I think the, the important point to, to to just acknowledge here is that cheap hawker food also is very important for maybe your low income populations Mm -hmm. right especially uh the elderly who live by themselves and and this is just part of, of of how they afford uh living and i do think that as much as you can have uh inflation and prices because of better value you still want to protect um at least a segment of. Of, or rather, you need to have policy in place or processes in place to account and, and, and cater to these groups of people, right? So I, I think there is this policy tension between raising prices in order to elevate hawker culture in order to make it more sustainable, but on the other hand, protecting these groups. I don't see it as an either or choice. I do think you can have policy in place, whether it's social transfers, which they already do, or uh, just having maybe specific uh, places where, where the food is cheaper.
0: What are social transfers?
1: Meaning, like food vouchers, right? Okay. So, for example, at
0: hawker centres, yeah. Do they so, have
1: yeah. they now? Uh, they do have uh, grocery vouchers. So, for example, mm. certain low-income populations, they will be given vouchers to go to NTUC and get groceries and stuff like that. I am not sure if they have like the same thing for for hawker centres. I wouldn't be surprised if they do, but it's just about strengthening that. Mm. Then, in that case, right? Uh, but then, in terms of going back to, to sustainability and and thinking about how we can preserve hawker culture in a more market-driven model, right? Then, yes, I, I think it comes down to value. And I think value is a very broad term. It could be uh, emotional value. Like, how much do you enjoy eating the dish because of yes. the visual look or because of, you know, uh, I guess, association with certain quality products and stuff like that. It could be customer service. It yeah. could be... Uh, even, I don't know, nutrition, right? So health benefits and stuff like that. So I think it's ultimately understanding what gives value to to consumers these days and serving them. And mm. like I said, a lot of the young hawkers that are coming out, I think they are getting that to a sense right? in how they brand their products and how they
0: yeah.
1: they do marketing and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting to see how new hawkers are taking up social media and trying to make things more hip and more trendy. So what do you think is the role of content creators who are putting content out there about Singaporean food culture or Singaporean culture as a whole? What do you think our role is to shift the needle?
1: Yeah, so I talked a lot about unpacking structure. That that was a big piece of what we did mm-hmm. uh, to to just open up the space for questions and open up the space for possibility and imagination. The other aspect is then around accessibility and awareness. So with some of the episodes that we've done, we've been very intentional to bring in people who could shine a light, who could talk a bit more about this topic. I mean, SG Noodles does a great job of this uh, with a lot of the guests that you've brought on, uh, and, and even some of the guests I, I've i listened to on your show, they've basically been very, very niche. And that's actually great, right? Because when you listen to niche, then you realize actually diversity is made up of so many parts, not just some of these big popular, uh, celebritized uh, pieces that, that exist out there. So so I think platforms like ours can can do that job to celebrate, affirm uh, diversity. And I think what, as you tries to do at the end of every episode uh, Elliot and I, we do that very intentional piece to connect it back to the Singapore identity, right? So we don't just say it exists, but we actually connect it to, actually being Singaporean means embracing this diversity. It means embracing that this yeah. part of our society is important, right? Yeah. Um, and, and we want to do more, the, the, the struggle that we have actually, and as you explained, is that diversity in Singapore is so uh, prevalent, it's so uh, broad and diverse that We haven't even gotten to some of these very, very niche, uh, diverse communities right? we haven't done uh, a topic on like, for example, I would love to do a topic on the Filipino presence in Singapore, right, because I think that's super interesting. I love like your good lechon or your adobo. But we're just, we're just starting off with like Sikh culture, right? And, and so yeah. uh, there's so much more that you could do and every episode well, tends to be interesting. Yeah,
0: I feel that in Singaporean culture, I mean, the society is so diverse, like you mentioned. And I feel that it's very selective in the sense that there's a lot of picking and choosing when it comes to what constitutes Singaporean, yeah. right? Do you yeah. feel the same?
1: Yeah, I think one of the greatest ironies uh, is that Singapore Early heritage and identity was very much determined by our ability to not draw lines, right? And so cultures could just mix. And actually, what's super interesting about Singaporean food is that as much as you can demarcate Chinese, Malay, Indian food, actually each of those dishes under those cuisines will have an influence on from each other, right? And even the broader regional context. But now we seem so insistent on drawing those lines. We seem so insistent on saying this is Singaporean food. Uh, even to the extent of saying, this is Singapore and this is Malaysian. Like, that's the difference, right? And <laughs> that's what we did for the Prata episode to actually point mm. out what's the difference between Roti Chennai and, and Roti Prata. Uh, but but when we draw those lines, then we also, first of all, like I said, we, we end up ostracizing or excluding a lot of these groups that, you know what, they are going to be in Singapore. They are in Singapore. They are making an influence regardless of what we think. Uh, and we also lose that opportunity for our food to evolve, right? Mm. Um, and And to an extent, I can appreciate and empathize because, as a young nation, we identity is determined by by some level of boundary drawing and to say, this is who we are and this is who we are not. But then I also think that you can do that in some regards, but for food, why? right? Like food is like it's yeah. such an exciting space to have innovation and to have experimentation. So so I think we need to ask ourselves those critical questions around what really does it mean to be Singaporean? It cannot be, I mean, this is my personal take, uh it cannot just be CMIO for the for the next yeah. uh fifty years, right? I think mm. whether we like it or not, Singapore is becoming more cosmopolitan and these influences will come.
0: Yeah. yeah. Just throwing this question out there, do you think that diversity is a threat to our unique Singaporean identity? I mean, for example, if we were to become so globalized in terms of taste, food choices, do you feel like we are at risk of Singaporean cuisine completely morphing and evolving into something that we do not recognize?
1: So it's already evolving and morphing um, mm. with regards to some of our cuisines, right? Like you can find places that are doing tonkatsu chicken cutlets. If yeah. in right? <laughs> so it's, it's there. It's not like it's not evolving. I think... What needs to happen is that you should continue to embrace and protect heritage cuisine, but not in a way that says this is the only type of Singapore cuisine. right? Mm-hmm. And you can see that in other uh, groups overseas. It's, of course, very, very much an act of intentionality, curation, and, and just bringing communities together. But you do have uh, spaces where you can embrace original heritage cuisine. But then you can also say this is evolved cuisine, this is fusion cuisine, this is, you know, ultimately new cuisine in in some way. And I think in Singapore, if you have stewards who can do that job, not see new food or new influences as threats, but to say, that's cool. Let's create space for that. but Let's also create space for heritage food Uh, Mm -hmm. and give people choice. Right. And I think there are some places where you can let the market play and you can say let the dollar decide which one survives. But I think there are some places where you can say, well, let values decide, right? Let values uh, protected by certain uh, systems, policies, uh, make sure that we don't lose heritage, crazy. So, mm-hmm. and, and I think those are uh, roles that policymakers, but not just policymakers, community managers, community stewards, leaders can also play a big role in, Yeah.
0: Yeah. So why do you think some cuisines in Singapore are favoured over others? For example, the Filipino or the Burmese working population, they've been in Singapore for a really long time. But a lot of Singaporeans have hardly ever ventured out of their comfort zone to try any of these dishes. So why do you think that that is so?
1: I think a big part of it has to do with how we perceive some of these cuisines. Um, So there's definitely a a perception and, and cultural awareness issue, I think, One of the things we've talked about and as you explained is how we have this weird obsession with like Japanese and uh, European colonial kind of of cuisine, right? So we tend to think French food as like amazing food and (laughs) Japanese food as amazing food. But then uh, equally involved and amazing uh, food from the region, we tend to think of as as not, well, I I would just say not in the same league as as some of these other cuisines. So I think we do need to challenge a lot of that. Uh, not just in terms of how we see uh, regional food, but even our own food, right? And this goes back to some of the points around like our hawker culture. Um, and I do appreciate stuff like um, Netflix Street Food, right? Which, mm. which did profile uh, street food as you know actually just as as effortful and I guess meaningful as, as some of these fine dining kind of focused cuisine overseas. Um, the other aspect would then just be around how much do we bring them into popular spaces and how much do we bring them into common spaces. So I actually never knew that Burmese food had its own, and this is my lack of awareness, right, and ignorance. I never knew that Burmese food had its whole like league of of cuisines until I actually went to Myanmar. I'm, I'm on this uh, weird uh, self-involved kind of obsession to hit fifty countries before I turn thirty. <laughs> And so uh, this was pre-COVID, of course. And so one of the countries I wanted to go to was Myanmar. And so I went to Myanmar, actually, knowing next to little about the country. Thankfully, I had some friends who guided me and told me, you know, where to go. And I had a friend in country to to bring me around. And that was when I started to try all this amazing food that was there. And and when I came back, I was thinking to myself, I kinda cr- I'm kind of craving <laughs> Burmese food, right? Like I want to have this. And I tried to look for it and I realized that they are either secluded in some of these mm. malls in, you know, in um, what's the one in, in
0: uh, City Peninsula Hall? Peninsula. Peninsula right?
1: Yeah, so that's where the Burmese food is. Filipino food is in Maki Plaza mm. and stuff like that. Uh, or there was this, thankfully, actually, when, this was back when I lived in Clementi. I found out that there was this uh, food center uh, in a HDB block that had a Burmese stall, and all the Burmese people in that region in, this, in the West, basically, would go to that stall. So, I was there and I was ordering Burmese food together with all these Burmese people. Uh, and that was the first time I think the people in that hawker center, in that food center, uh, I could see Chinese, uh, Indian people also ordering Burmese food. But it was only because it was there, right, in that common space. It wasn't uh, tucked away in the pen- peninsula. So, I think that the question is how much do we actually invite and allow participation of these cuisines in, in what we, what we, draw as our common spaces as well right you can easily find these days uh, in hawker centers japanese stalls or western stalls, even western stalls which i guess nowadays like western western and like your hawker western right <laughs> uh, but but i think how much do we actually allow filipino indonesian burmese uh, any sort of regional cuisine in fact to, to have a stall and just be part of it i think that would that would also influence how we integrate those into our overall food culture
0: yeah, actually, I'm not sure if you know, know about this Singaporean called Brian Cole. So he's mm. Singaporean by his uh, cookbook author who has explored a lot of regional cuisines in the Philippines, in Borneo, places like that. And he recently did a wonderful dinner, um, like a four-hands kind of dinner, at a really posh setting. And I, I saw like so many people on my social media um, page, they were all g- going crazy for the food. You know, and That's it's so amazing. interesting because a lot of the dishes that he presented, they were really like kampong style food, right? You know, food that you would find in villages. And then the moment that you place it in a posh setting, suddenly people were like being really super about it. They were like, oh my God, this is genius. This is a genius combination. And I was just thinking, you know, it's so interesting how context just changes everything. It changes yeah. the en- enjoyment of a certain kind of food. Do you feel that for Singaporean food... People feel a sense of this is street food and, you know, it can't really compare with cuisines from the West. Do you feel that there is a sense of of that? That is why we are okay with spending so little money on it?
1: So I think there is a role for fine dining to elevate cuisine and to just showcase actually more depth within some of these uh, culinary practices and, and even just in terms of the ingredients and stuff like that. But I don't see fine dining as necessarily the only way to to bridge accessibility for, for a lot of these cuisines, right? So going back to the point around just bringing some of these places into hawker centers, I think actually there's a growing group of, of people that love uh, your Donda Doki style, like you know, it's almost like canteen Japanese food. Yeah. It's not elevated. Yes, you do pay a bit more. Like I think your average price ends up being around 15 to 20, uh, but but you also have Japanese cuisine coming into hawker centers these days for like 8 to $10, and people are happily willing to spend it, right? And so I think, yes, fine dining does a good job of profiling, but your target segment is always going to be your upper middle to, mm. to wealth class uh, folks. I think when we talk about broad-based engagement, it's it's really about how do we create, like you said, that that invites participation, that invites curious minds to go and participate. I think you see some of that with, um
0: i think Jollibee
1: did a huge job of this right like they brought in so many people who are intrigued by by why is this fast food change is like having such long lines not that Jollibee is filipino cuisine but you know Jollibee is in lucky plaza and then when you go to lucky plaza maybe you'll see some of the other food there right uh and, and that's there's a couple of places now uh, in that in that part of orchard like max and stuff like that that i've wanted to try but I've always been intimidated by the lines on the weekends. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just creating awareness and showing and inviting participation. I think in order to imagine what Singapore can look like for all of us, for a more diverse population, for a more inclusive population, we need to unpack uh, what exists, right? And so my goal is to is to use the podcast as a way to unpack, and then the brand, an overall brand, as a way to then start doing that work around creating platforms for for people to then construct a new uh, paradigm of what they want singapore to look like mm-hmm. right i want singapore to be more inclusive i want more voices to have a seat at the table i want more identities to be seen affirmed and validated value and so i think a lot of that work requires you know more pieces along along that same path and so i think the sg Explained brand can do that uh, it, it it has the the foundation now with the podcast and even the newsletter to do it, and so I want to, you know, start investing into those follow-up pieces as well. Yeah. yeah.
0: Can I also ask if you feel that Singapore has become less and less inclusive?
1: I don't know if it's less inclusive. I think the the lines have become bolder around what people want to to define as yes Singapore and no Singapore, uh, and I think you also are starting to see more groups asking to. Asking for those lines to be redrawn. right? So I think the tension is there, and I think there's more visibility on that tension. But I don't know if we become less inclusive. I think the conversation is ongoing.
0: You mean the I lines think, between what is Singaporean and what is not Singaporean?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so even with some of the recent racial uh, incidents right, that have happened, actually, what's what's interesting when you observe it is a lot of people basically saying, "No, oh, we've always been saying this, mm. but now we want to redraw the line around what is acceptance and tolerance slash religious harmony,
0: mm.
1: uh, sorry, racial harmony, and to include some level of acceptance and uh, social equity.
0: Right? Mm. We don't
1: want to be excluded from job applications or rental applications. Uh, we don't want to be subject to uh, unconscious bias and, and you know implicit discrimination and stuff. again we want that, we want the line to now say, these things are also not part of what it means to be Singapore. And so it, th- that's what I'm saying. These people have always been asking for this, but the line is much clearer now because of social media, because of uh, amplification on different platforms and, and stuff like that. And so I that's why I'm saying that's why I don't want to say we're less inclusive. I think we've always had these issues. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting is that we are at an interesting point in our history as a young country yeah. to start asking ourselves how much are we willing to keep those lines in place as a way to define identity in an exclusionary way?
0: Yeah.
1: Or how much are we willing to actually take the courage to, to expand those lines and include people who are already here? Yeah. That's the biggest thing. We're not expanding our lines of people who don't exist. They are here, they live here. They're contributing to our society and our economy. So
0: yeah. true. Do you feel that our education system in Singapore has been sufficient in terms of us understanding our neighbors and the different cuisines and cultures in Singapore? Because I feel that a lot of the the racism in Singapore um, or insensitivity really comes from a lack of understanding.
1: So I can only speak for my education uh, history because I feel like education has evolved a lot since I graduated actually. I went back to do a talk at, at my actually not my high school, but uh, I went back to RI where, where I went for junior college, and they invited me back to the, to the secondary school um, student leaders to give a talk. And these guys are like so intellectual; they are much more intellectual than I remember being. Uh, and but also very aware of social issues. They were aware of topics like power. Uh, they were aware of topics like uh, social inclusion. And I was very impressed, right? So something must have changed. Maybe, I mean, it's it's a very select uh, data point around RI. I'm not sure the broader education system has evolved. Uh, but definitely, I didn't have those conversations when I was the age, right? So I think, I think first of all, just to acknowledge that things may have changed and I'm not sure uh, what the current status is like. I will say that during my time, the way that we approach topics around diversity and and, and even Our place in the regional environment tended to be uh, in an us-versus-them kind of perspective, right? It was like, uh, these are all these groups and you kind of look at it like you're intellectually looking at a zoo, right? You're like, oh, this is what the culture is like, this is what the culture is like. Without actually going and engaging and feeling like you have a sense of connection to it, you have a relationship to it. Uh, And then even within Singapore, uh, that, that sense of racial harmony was it felt very artificial rather than something that was experienced right when you mm-hmm. did racial harmony day you had to come in all your clothes but like realistically how many of us actually wear some of these clothes on a day-to-day <laughs> like what is the real lived experience of racial harmony it is yeah. not wearing multiple uh, ethnic uh, costumes right it's it's really about how we live how we participate in in daily life and stuff like that and i think those conversations are harder to have and so in a in a place of, of organizational efficiency you of course go for what's you know more visible and easier to achieve like so so I hope those things have evolved. Based on all the position that's been made from MOE and, and different groups, it sounds like they are trying to explore those areas. And I do know people within the public service in these spaces, MOE mm-hmm. and stuff like that, who do care about those things. But they have to operate within a machinery that's maybe, you know, a bit slower than how they would like to
0: move as well. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, on my podcast, I speak to people such as Jawagi um, um, Damien de Silva, who come mm. from the older generation, and I. I love Damien. Old...
1: I, I was, uh, I went to kids so many times when I was at oh.
0: yeah. <laughs> I've not been there yet, but you know, <laughs> he was so lovely to speak to, and uh, I felt that they painted a picture of Singapore that is one that is very different from what I grew up in, where you know, to them, they experienced a lot of. Uh, multicultural kind of exchanges, cross-cultural exchanges. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, for me, when I was growing up, the people that I hung out with, you know, we we mostly kept within our social group or like racial group. And so I think it was really refreshing to hear that perspective and see how Singaporean society and community could evolve, you know, in a positive way.
1: Yeah, I think... A lot of it goes back to common space. A lot of it goes back to how much do people feel like they have permission to enter spaces that, that may not feel familiar to them. Uh, and then, of course, that whole concept around how do we move from appreciation to then embracing and building something new for everyone. right? And I think those types of social conversations again i find it very ironic because in the inception of singapore that was actually a lot of what they were doing right around creating a unified singapore identity and for some reason we've we've hard-coded it and we've stopped allowing ourselves to evolve and so i think that's actually come to our detriment a bit these days
0: Mm, definitely i love what you're doing and i love the energy that comes from what you do and uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast it was lovely talking to you
1: Yes ma'am, I'm looking forward to having you on ours.
0: (laughs) That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Rovic Jeremiah Robert of the SG Explained podcast. They are doing amazing work to share about Singaporean culture and I was recently on one of their episodes to chat about heritage food. They also have tons of interesting episodes ranging from the Singaporean prison system to wet markets in Singapore. So definitely check them out if you are keen. Food media tends to focus on Singapore's best hits like chicken rice or laksa and fails to capture the diversity of Singaporean food. By documenting overlooked recipes, Singapore Noodles seeks to share about Singapore's rich food culture with you. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can sign up to be a member on our website, sgpnoodles.com. You'll gain access to all of the recipes on the site and participate in monthly cook-alongs. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.